So, have you heard of Sense? It's this little orange box that connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. I have seen this thing in action. I've seen how powerful the data is. Sense lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much energy they're using in real time so you can save money and see what's happening all from your smartphone. The Sense technology was developed by the same team that pioneered speech recognition and brought it to market. Sense is a sponsor of the Energy Gang and you should go check them out at sense.com/energygang. That's sense s e n s e sense.com/energygang. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacy. Welcome. We vacillate between pessimism and optimism on this show, depending on the subject we're covering. I'm not going to speak for my co-hosts, but today's headlining subject puts me a little closer to the pessimistic camp, the rise of global emissions. After three years of decline, global climate pollution rose last year. Meanwhile, nukes are shutting down at a rapid rate here in America, raising serious concerns about a coming emissions rise here as well. We'll look at the factors behind the reversal. Then, a related topic on the nuke front, First Energy Solutions, the competitive arm of major utility First Energy, filed for bankruptcy protection. It's got a couple major nuke plants set for closure, and it's asking the government to declare an emergency to keep the plants open, but not for climate reasons. We'll look at the politics and the market pressure. Finally, EPA Chief Scott Pruitt is cutting back on Obama-era fuel efficiency standards. We'll explore the consequences here in America and potentially abroad. Jigger Shaw is with us from Bethesda, Maryland. He's the president of Generate Capital. I always say you're in D.C. because it's easier for people to imagine. You're in the D.C. area. Uh, how are things in the D.C. area, Jigger? They're going great. It's funny, though, because it's going to snow again next week. So we'll have to see how uh, climate weirding is working itself out. But on a brighter note, I'm actually like, you know, in the final throes of signing a contract to put solar and uh, battery storage in my house. Oh, that's cool. And how has the uh, regulatory front gone for you? Uh, I think it's pretty good. Montgomery County has a streamlined permit process. So it's only like 400 bucks to permit the the solar system. So I think it's going pretty good, but I'll let you know afterwards. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions. She is actually in Washington, D.C. proper. How are you? I'm doing great, although I live in the old Dominion, and it will be a while before solar is cost-effective for me. Someday soon. Yes. You, you both sound like you're in a good mood, so let's see how you feel after this week's show. We marvel at the quickening pace of renewable electricity, and rightly so. It is literally and figuratively transforming the energy landscape. But uh, let's drag out this tired metaphor. We don't want to miss the forest from the trees. Wind and solar are upending electricity markets, and they are helping in uh, some localized markets push down carbon emissions. But globally, they aren't necessarily pushing down carbon emissions, and that's because there's a lot of factors at play. The International Energy Agency has new numbers out, and they say that 2017 emissions rose after a couple of year decline corresponding with a strong rise in oil, natural gas, and coal demand, even while renewables had another record year. So 72% of the rise in energy demand, largely coming from China and India, came from fossil fuels. America, on the other hand, 
did see another drop in carbon emissions, and IEA says that renewables were a major contributing factor. So again, good news there. But many worry that that may not last in the medium or long term because we've seen yet more announcements of nuke plants shutting down. And if they do, that could wipe out positive gains in the coming years. So let's first talk about the global trends, and then we'll focus over to the American story. Catherine, what stood out to you among the many contributing factors outlined by IEA? Yeah, so when you look at energy demand increasing, and it went up 2.1% in 2017 compared with 0.9% in previous years. Uh, Really, China and India stand out. But India, remember, gave electricity to half a billion more people. So more people have access now than before. So that is a step in the right direction. As you said, on CO2 emissions, it grew globally by 1.4% in 2017, except in the US, which was the, the biggest drop, but the UK, Mexico, Japan, all had drops. Um, I reached out to Fatih Birol, who is the head of IEA and is a co-chair on my um, one, some of the energy work I do at the World Economic Forum. And they said, look, it is worth noting that renewables saw the highest growth rate among all energy sources, a quarter, making up for a quarter of energy demand growth in 2017. Also, there was a structural, and so that's a structural trend. Renewables is not slowing down, it is continuing to grow. There were also some cyclical elements like weather conditions in China, for example, there was a really warm summer and their GDP grew. And so their electricity demand went up um, and that's partly weather, partly um, GDP growth. One of the things that's happening in emerging economies is that they have not delinked growth to to increased demand use and CO2 emissions, whereas the U.S. has been able to do that. So, and other other developed economies have been able to do that. But in China, you'll see that there was a warm summer. There are also lower energy efficiency improvements, which is something we have to pay attention to um, because they have not done as much on the policy front on energy efficiency and also low energy prices causes people to not be as conservative with energy. So they're saying that they still see there is reason to believe the emissions growth out to 2040 will be lower than what we've observed over the past two and a half decades, but it still looks like a growth in CO2 emissions. So they, they, they believe at EIA that they have not achieved a peak in energy-related CO2 emissions, but it looks like the trajectory is not reversing itself. This brings us to a narrative about electrification that I think we've discussed a number of times on this show, and that is off-grid renewables can meet local electrification needs faster, and they're growing incredibly fast and will therefore reduce emissions. And what we've seen again in 2017 is that largely a lot of the electrification efforts were met by expanded coal use. Jigger, how do we square that? Well, I think when you look at the data, there wasn't more coal plants that were built on a capacity basis in China in particular. And so when the heat wave happened, they just burned more coal within existing coal plants. But they also also built 50 gigawatts of new solar, much of which was under construction last year, but would be able to actually meet a lot of that air conditioning demand in future years, right? So look, I don't think that that the existing natural gas and coal plants are going away anytime soon. But I do think the big trend that people should be watching is that that is that people are not really building any net new coal capacity globally. And the reason for that is because it is obvious to everyone that those coal plants are not going to run long enough to actually pencil. 
Yeah. So another thing is in December of last year, China, which is the world's largest heat consumer, announced their five-year clean heating plan, which is going to focus on the cities in the north, and they're going to cut the use of coal for heating and replace it with cleaner sources from renewables, biomass, geothermal, solar. So I think that you'll see that trend also uh, dive even further in China. Can, Can I just express my sincere confusion here. There are a number of people who say like, hey, conventional renewables are just not going to do the job. But then there are a lot of other positive trends. And I just go round and round and round in my head. And I think a lot, I'm, tra- I'm channeling what a lot of other people feel when they read these numbers too. Um, but I inevitably come back to pessimism. Well, look, I mean, it is obvious to anyone who's actually reviewed the data that we are not even close to getting to two degrees. Uh, let alone 1.5 degrees, right? I mean, the notion that anyone that's actually part of this industry who's read the data believes that we're reducing emissions fast enough to get there, like they've they've got their head in the sand, right? So so we're not there. And it is very obvious from the data that we're not there. But I think that the, the counter narratives is the part that I'm more concerned about, which is the notion that like, well, coal is expanding. That's not true. The, the, the notion that natural gas is expanding, that's also not true. There's a reason why GE and Siemens have laid off most of the people in their turbine manufacturing divisions because they're not manufacturing a lot more gas plants. What is true is that a lot of these plants have excess capacity. They've been running at 50% of capacity, 70% of capacity, 20% of capacity. And so when you have a hot summer and the solar and wind plants haven't yet been built, well, then you're going to burn those plants for more hours, right? You're going to operate them for more hours. But that's a temporary thing that occurs in one summer. But structurally, we're building a lot more solar and wind so that in the future, um, you're going to build, you're going to run those plants for less hours. And you see that in the Energy Information Administration data where the U.S. economy has basically been flat for the last 15 years in terms of energy usage. And natural gas has increased its market share but the total number of megawatt hours or gigawatt hours of of natural gas that we're using is actually going down. It's not going up. And so their market share is going up, but that's just because we're using less you know, gigawatt hours in the U.S. And I think, Stephen, one thing we do need to pay attention to is energy efficiency and energy intensity. So making sure that we have continued strong efficiency policy um, that is stringent and that we stick to because that's going to be really important in emerging economies that continue to grow. Going back to your earlier point, Jigger, that when you look at the data, very few people think that we're on the, I mean, no one thinks that we're on the right track here. We're not even close to the right track. We're talking about a a half a percent reduction in carbon emissions in the United States, which is leading industrialized economies. Like that is not anywhere close to where we need to be. And that's probably the most positive emissions reduction story right now. I think we need to have a really serious conversation at some point about how to support sequestering carbon. Uh, We need to store massive amounts of carbon underground. And we probably need to be talking about it way more than we are because China and India are going to scale up way faster. There are a lot of other people connecting to the grid. Um, These, you know, half a percent reductions, 1% improvement in energy efficiency, it just does not cut it. And we are completely, we're not talking about CCS, which we should be. Or CCUS, which is you have to put the utilization in there or it really isn't going to work out. Or CC in the United States. 
I mean, look, the bottom line is that we're the ones who passed the 45Q tax credit. And I'm looking at many, many business plans right now around financing CCS opportunities in the United States. So like the U.S. is leading in those areas and it does take time for those technologies to go from the lab through RPE to like the Valley of Death and then to the place where project finance folks like like Generate can fund these deals, right? But I think separately, when I was at the Carbon War Room, we did partner with the Royal Academy and others to publish um, reports on geoengineering. I know that we're going to do geoengineering. I just think it's laughable for people to think that we're not going to do a geoengineering. I just hope that we actually structure it in a way that it's not just some billionaire who starts uh, doing stuff without global consensus. But, you know, that stuff's definitely going to happen. So look, I mean, this is where we are. When you're at a position where where we're getting tons of additional snow all the way down to Atlanta because the jet streams are changing and you start getting this, these major changes in populations and you have mass migrations of refugees because of climate issues, which we're getting in Burma and other places. At some point, you end up in a situation where these other measures start to take off. And what I hope is that the technologies are all sufficiently tested and well-developed such that China and India can implement them when they're politically ready to. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think we're, we're due for a, a change in the framework of the conversation. So I just want to quickly turn to the nuclear question here in the United States, because it's gotten a lot of traction in energy, Twitter, and a lot more folks are writing pieces about the potential reversal of the emissions decline in the United States, which was driven first by natural gas and now more and more by renewables, as pointed out by the IEA. So we've got 18 plants that are now slated for closure in the coming years. There's probably a bunch more. Uh, a couple more announced by First Energy, which is going, which has a subsidiary going through a bankruptcy proceeding, and we're going to talk about that in our next section. But um, the amount of electricity, carbon-free electricity provided by these plants, is going to surpass uh, the amount of renewable electricity that we've uh, been generating over the last couple of years. So we're basically running in place, and the scenario does not look good. What do you both? think about the current situation as it stands with nuclear closures and what that means for America's emissions picture. The nuclear closures that have been announced are because those plants are uneconomic. The plants were paid for by the ratepayers, the consumers when they were built. I remember um, way back in the day when Virginia was built, Dominion was building, it was VEPCO then, was building nuclear plants and rates were skyrocketing and all of the executives at the company had to have hostage protection insurance because there were just a lot of people filled with hatred toward the utility. And now we're looking at, do we want to pay for them a second or third time. They were paid again during uh, deregulation, and now we're going to pay for those plants a third time and then have them still have to retire. So we do have to think about how are we going to let these plants retire when they're done with their useful life and they're not all retiring at the same time. It's not like all of them are going to shut down. How do we retire? How, allow them to retire when they're supposed to and backfill, not necessarily with 100% renewables, but remember there are a lot of other flexible forms of generation out there, which is what I've been working my entire career on, which is energy efficiency, demand response, storage, consumer applications and engagement, smart grid. There's so many other ways that we can put renewables and clean technology to use that we have some time to build those in. And I, I so I think we don't need to be over-concerned about them all shutting down at once. If you think about 
plants that will close after 40 years or so, that brings us out to about um, 2035, 2025 to 2035 when we really start having a problem. And the picture for a lot of those technologies you mentioned, Catherine, will be quite different. And in fact, is very different today uh, compared to the analysis that was put out on this issue by Third Way. Uh, it was a collaboration between MIT and Third Way in 2015, looking at what happens to our emissions picture if a bunch of these plants close down. So they said it doesn't look good because it'll get filled in. These plants will get filled in by natural gas. We have largely seen that that's the case in the short term, but you sound, Catherine, like you're pretty hopeful that that will not necessarily be the case. And Jigger, we were talking about this beforehand. You said that that that's actually changing now, that natural gas uh, generation is not actually increasing in this country. Yeah, I mean, at least not in 2016 and 2017, right? Natural gas generation on a megawatt hour basis has basically stayed flat or gone down. Uh, look, I the, the thing that frustrates me about this conversation is context, right? So let's say that all of the writing on Third Way or or from the Breakthrough Institute or whoever it is that's like harping on this this week, you know, wants to talk about. The challenge is what do you do about it, right? We have a plan in place. We've implemented it in New York and Illinois. What we've said to the nuclear energy industry is great. If you want to keep these nuclear plants open, it's a trade. For every dollar you get, the renewable energy and energy efficiency industries get $3. And that's the trade that we passed in Illinois. And that's the trade that we passed in New York. And so if they want to keep the plants open in Ohio, we can do that trade, right? We can give them a do- for every dollar of subsidies we give the nuclear industry, we need $3 for expanded energy efficiency and renewable energy programs. And we have the votes to do that. But the owners of the plants, in this case, First Energy, but in other cases, other companies, they don't want that trade because they don't like renewables and energy efficiency. Exelon fought us tooth and nail in both New York and in Illinois. And it was only when they realized they could not get the subsidies without the renewable energy and energy efficiency expansions that they caved, right? And it's just mind-numbing to me that NEI and these other folks are not providing leadership in this area. They all talk a good game, but their, their constituents, which are the utilities that own these plants, are not interested in promoting renewable energy and energy efficiency and making the political trade. I get the sense that there's that, that the desperation is increasing and that the possibility for that kind of political compromise is improving, um, both because renewables advocates and environmental advocates see it as a potential win, and there's also alarmism on on the side of environmentalism on the side of environmentalists that we're going to see a, a poor emissions picture if a lot of these plants close down in the coming decade or two. And my sense is that there's an openness to compromise because these utilities are just so desperate now because they're getting wiped out in the competitive markets. Right, but only after we stifle all other options. Like It's like the Winston Churchill quote, right, which is that America can be counted on to be a good partner after they've exhausted all other options. And, like, and that's what they're doing. The utilities are not proactively looking to to reach out and like, you know, and grab the outstretched hand that the renewable energy industry has provided to them to get these votes passed. And so it is not our job to do more than reach out and, you know, offer a solution. We have reached out and offered a solution for all 18 nuclear power plants, right? Without exception. And they have not met us halfway. And so like, so they keep trying to figure out a way to get around us and get their nuclear power plant saved through DOE action or whatever it is. And then when all else fails, they say, okay, maybe we'll reach out 
and do a deal with you. And so I just don't like the unfair characterization that we're not trying to be helpful to keep these plants open. But yeah, of course, we're going to be selfish about saying, if we help you get these plants open, we need an expanded renewable portfolio standard and an expanded energy efficiency standard. Well, that's a really good segue into our next conversation about First Energy. But first, the Lacey family, we're a little neurotic. I have to do my daily sump pump check. My wife sometimes leaves the house and has to text me about whether she left the iron on or any other appliance on. Uh, and so I think like a lot of us, you know, we, we have to check up on these things. Well, with Sense, you'll never have to worry again because you can always keep tabs on your home while also saving energy and making the most of your solar investment. The same team that brought speech recognition technology to market is now focused on the home. And so the Sense box it installs in your electrical panel. It uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. Those real-time insights can let you know when your kids got home, whether the sump pump is running, or whether you left that iron on. And if you have solar, it's even better because you can compare whole home energy usage and solar production side-by-side all with no monthly fee. So it's great for a homeowner. It's also great for solar installers who want to help customers make the most of their solar investment or for utilities who are looking to deliver more holistic energy services. Sense can help there too. To find out what Sense can do for you, visit sense.com slash energy gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, sense.com slash energy gang. Okay, so let's shift back to First Energy. I've been eagerly monitoring Trump's Twitter feed this morning, waiting to see if he mentions coal or First Energy in particular. Last night, he reportedly had dinner with lobbyists connected to the company. Uh, First Energy is a struggling coal-heavy Midwestern utility that's been hit hard in competitive markets, as we just described in our last segment. And there's just a ton going on with this company right now, most of it not good. Over the weekend, First Energy's competitive generation business has filed for bankruptcy protection. Their nuke and coal plants are getting slammed in competitive markets, and they failed to diversify. And as Jigger said, that they failed to even negotiate. You know, they've they've really failed to just sit down at the negotiating table and say, like, how can we hash out some kind of compromise that may benefit renewables and may benefit some of their their individual uh, nuke plants. So meanwhile, the utility is begging the federal government for a bailout. After Rick Perry's failed attempt to get FERC to create special tariffs for coal and nuke plants, First Energy asked DOE recently uh, to issue an emergency measure that would create must-run rules for its plants. We, we don't have word yet on what DOE will do, but First Energy is trying hard to grab the administration's attention. It does have a lot of connections. It spends a couple million dollars in Washington on lobbying every year. Um, so after last night's dinner, where lobbyists connected to the company were supposed to be, that's why I'm keeping tuned to a Twitter policy spasm from the president. Nothing yet as of this recording. But Jigger, I can hear you sharpening your knives once again, because First Energy has been this super vocal skeptic of demand response and distributed energy over the years. They fought demand response legally. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, They have resisted the shift away from coal. So I'll just ask bluntly, how much did that particular resistance contribute to these major financial troubles? Well, look, in, in small ways and large ways, this is how companies go bankrupt, right? It's not like they didn't have the money to hire a lot uh, 
a research analyst to tell them what was happening. I mean, the Marcellus Shale is right next door to them. So they knew about cheap natural gas coming online. They knew about all these trends and they just chose not to do anything about it, right? That's how people like run their companies into the ground. So I, I don't know, like I don't feel bad about it. In some ways I feel great about it because even though there are real people that are you know, going to lose their jobs over this. I think that they were led by a bad leader. And, you know, now they're going to be able to get new jobs probably in the renewable energy industry because we're the ones who are hiring. And remember, just to clarify, this is not First Energy Corporation, the parent company. And that First Energy Corporation has 10 regulated utilities serving 6 million customers. That It is not that piece of it. It is First Energy Solutions that has their generation nuclear fleet. That's exactly right. First Energy Solutions was formed in 1997, I think. And that was when a lot of major utilities were jumping over from the regulated side into the unregulated, expanding unregulated markets and trying their hand at competitive generation. They did well for a while, but the last eight years, five to eight years, haven't been very good for many of these companies, which is why First Energy is putting its focus back into regulated markets. And and a lot of other generators are doing the same thing and trying to figure out what to do with their unregulated arms. So thank you for the clarification. The other reason these guys are behind is because this division has been losing so much money that First Energy, the corporate holding company, is not as profitable as some of the, some of the other holding companies. And so they haven't been able to benefit from investing in wind and solar projects around the country like Dominion or Con Ed or, or NextEra or others have. And so they were sort of limited in their ability to diversify on the renewable energy side because they couldn't benefit from the tax equity. And remember, although First Energy is the largest customer of Murray, and remember, Murray is the coal folks that the administration seems to love helping. Uh, Bruce Walker, the Assistant Secretary of the Office of Electricity at Department of Energy, has said publicly that they are not going to use this complaint to prop up a company for economic reasons. This uh, Federal Power Act Section 202C um, has only been used eight times since 2000. It's really supposed to be during wartime or when there's a real emergency. So it was used once during the Obama administration during Hurricane Ike. It's been used twice so far in the Trump administration in Oklahoma and Virginia. But those I've been told by DOE are really because one was a lightning strike and one was um, a transmission line that wasn't up. And so there, there were reasons for that it to be used and it was only for a limited period of time. So remember this is this is not supposed to be to prop up an uneconomic plant. But Catherine, you can imagine this is an act of God. It is the sun and the wind that's killing them. <laughs> <laughs> so Donald Schneider, who's the president of First Energy Solutions, said that PJM quote has demonstrated little urgency to remedy this problem. And by this problem he means that he thinks that there will be disruptions to the transmission system served by PJM if some of these uh, First Energy Solutions plants shut down, which is completely unsupported by the data. Like, I think that's that's that should be clear that, like, th- there are no emergency declarations from PJM or other grid operators about some of these plants that are shutting down. They've all said, we see what closures are coming and we can basically handle them. Yeah, they're the grid operator. They should know what's going to happen to the grid when these shut down. And they've pretty much categorically said, this is not the case. 
Well, here is a thought exercise that I think we should go through. What should First Energy do? Let's say that you were CEO for a day or for a week or for a year. How would you turn the company around? What kind of decisions would you make? The company is very late to the game on the distributed energy side. Uh, you know, I think a lot of utilities that are trying to figure that this space haven't totally figured it out. There's on one end of the spectrum, the focus on CNI customers and the set of solutions to serve CNI customers on the generation and billing side. Um, and then there's the companies that are focusing a lot on renewable energy development um, and EPCs and engineering procurement and construction. So, what should First Energy focus on given current market dynamics and the markets it serves? So a lot of these facilities actually hold very critical interconnection and transmission rights. So when you think about these coal and natural gas plants, for instance, what AES has done with their natural gas plants is they've actually put in a lot of battery storage at these natural gas plants to be able to utilize the existing interconnection costs and the frequency regulation markets in the markets that they're in. Other, you know, folks have figured out how to like convert some of these plants to biomass. For instance, there's a huge number of biomass pellets that are stranded in the Southeast right now that were, were supposed to be for Drax in the UK, but the UK has changed their, their mind. And a lot of these, these pellets are far better than burning coal in these coal plants because they produce a far less fly ash. And so there's a lot of, solutions that people are coming up with in terms of how to repurpose coal plants. Um, but, you know, First Energy is not interested in figuring out what technologies are available and how to how to utilize them. I mean, and then on the nuclear plants, I think we've had a conversation about this. I mean, there is a very straightforward way to solve the, the problem with nuclear. There are many people who are willing to provide the cash necessary to keep them open because they are our largest source of clean energy today in this country. But, you know, they haven't wanted to take the deal because they're so vitriolically opposed to anything that looks like progress. And there are huge costs associated with decommissioning nuclear and dealing with coal ash from coal. So there still are a lot of there are a lot of costs that are going to go into whatever happens with their existing plants. I know a lot of folks who are worried about environmental cleanup are concerned that the bankruptcy protection process will um, prevent First energy from cleaning up coal ash ponds and and other toxins. Um, I like that though. I think that's a good place to leave it, Jigger, because it's not just investing in wind and solar. It's figuring out how to repurpose coal plants, and it's actually being a political negotiator and recognizing the reality of of what needs to happen, what can happen to keep these plants open. So let's turn to Washington for our last story. Um, over to Scott Pruitt. He has lobbed his latest grenade into the Obama administration's EPA agenda. He just announced that he'll seek to roll back standards from 2022 onward that would have brought average fuel efficiency for passenger cars to around 54.5 miles per gallon. The auto industry has been pushing for the rollback and has been preparing for this moment for a number of years. Pruitt also said that he would revisit a special waiver for California that allows it to set its own aggressive standards. Governor Jerry Brown's response, I don't think so. We'll see you in court. Catherine, what exactly did Pruitt announce and why now? Yeah, so I'm sure he's going to be listening to this in his little phone booth. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> it, so is, I reach- it is corporate apartment at 50 bucks a night. 
<laughs> right, right. <laughs> I reached out to Andrew Linhart at the Sierra Club, who really understands the policy behind all of this. What happened was right before the administration changed over, so January 11th of 2017, the Obama administration made a final determination on the standards and approved the 2025 numbers. So when Trump came in, he reopened it. And this does not change it instantly. What this means is that there's going to have comment periods. So probably in late May or early June, draft maybe a new joint rule with NHTSA, remember the highway transportation safety folks that we've talked about before. So there are three entities that are all kind of inextricably linked. One is NHTSA, which deals with fuel economy. One is EPA, which was brought in to be part of this partnership because of the 2007 EPA versus Massachusetts decision in which EPA is going to be regulating greenhouse gas emissions. So that became linked to the fuel economy piece. And then California, because they had so many air quality issues, their CARB, the um, California um, Air Resources Board also works on greenhouse gas emissions and fuel economy. So those three entities have been very aligned since 2011 on all of their programs. So NHTSA has not done their final technical assessment report from the Obama um, determination for the CAFE standards. So that report still needs to come out. So the thought is that that NHTSA report later or earlier in the summer linked to this potentially new rule would come out at the same time. And they will, they will probably come up with a very variety of scenarios and a comment period of maybe 90 days, have at least one hearing. But the piece about California is something everybody needs to pay attention to. So Section 177 of the Clean Air Act sets out that California and 13 other states, this is 40% of the U.S. population and over 30% of the car market. This is not federal government versus California. This is the feds versus 30% of the car market and 40% of the population. So there is no provision or understanding right now how EPA could dismantle Section 177 of the Clean Air Act. There, it hasn't been done. Those waivers are in place and there's no process by which they could undermine those. So that remains a big question is how would you procedurally revoke the waiver? That's kind of the way it stands right now. Well, and Pruitt hasn't played his cards on that. I think he's hinted that he's going to revisit it, but no one really knows how. Well, that's if he has a job next week. But look, I I, I, want to make sure that we step back for a second and have a real conversation about CAFE because it's just, it's maddening, right? Because almost all of the benefits of CAFE were realized by Jimmy Carter, right? So when you look at the actual data, of what our fuel economy has been as a nation from a from a fleet perspective across the entire country it has not moved since 1990 it's gone up a little bit it was sort of like 19 miles a gallon now it's more like 23 miles a gallon but the notion that cafe standards work is ridiculous so let's just start there like we have not seen any progress in cafe standards and the reason for that is because we always give the automakers a way out, right? And so for a long time, that way out was flexible fuel vehicles. And so for a long time, if you made a car that was E85 capable, ethanol 85% capable, you got a 66 mile per gallon credit for that car. And so every minivan sold in this country was a flex fuel vehicle, even though it never 
burned a drop of E85. And then the Obama administration did the same thing. They said, well, we're going to do this with electric vehicles. If you sell electric vehicles, you get all these other bonus credits, right? And so I just think it's important for us to know that corporate average fuel economy is a failed policy. And so regardless of whether Pruitt's doing this or this person's doing that, we should just throw it out and start over. Well, it's also very confusing. It's run by three bodies. There's a confusing set of standards. Catherine, you did such an excellent job explaining how CAFE standards work, but I find that my head is spinning after I listen to it. It's a very confusing set of policies. Um, I will push back though, Jigger. I mean, I'm looking at the numbers here and like you look at 2000, you know, uh, corporate average fuel economy was 22 uh, miles per gallon. And in 2010, it was you know, 24 and 2016, it was 27. No, you're talking um, about the standards. The actual achieved fuel economy was 19.5 in 1989. And in 2015, it was about 21.6. So in, in 16 years, we basically increased, or actually in 26 years, we increased the fuel economy on a nationwide basis. This includes light trucks, SUVs, cars, everything else by like 1.5 miles a gallon. It hasn't worked. And most of that is just because we've lightweighted the cars. I mean, most of these cars are now far lighter than they were back then because we're using advanced materials. Yeah, but these these standards are set to raise um, miles per gallon between 36 and 37 by 2025. So I think the trajectory was such that it was was going to increase significantly. Yeah, maybe. But like, I'm just saying that to, to suggest that it has worked since 1989 is ridiculous. We never hit 24.5 miles a gallon, which is where it was before. I just think we have to revisit whether these policies are working. Clearly, the automakers are very powerful and they have the ability to get loopholes passed within their, um, their you know, lobbying mandate as much as they want. And so then we don't really achieve the fuel reductions that we're looking for. And so I would rather us actually spend all of our efforts in California and the other states that matter that want to like actually, you know, spend time on this around how do we electrify the, the vehicle fleet? How do we use more car sharing? What do we do around reducing vehicles mile traveled, right? And all these other things. And if I just think the notion that we're just going to increase fuel economy and it's going to happen, like the data belies that it's not working. Yeah, but say the F-150 really has become more efficient. And if you are someone who is in a rural community who goes and you go to replace your F-150 with a new one, you don't expect your fuel economy to go down. You expect it to go up every year. You expect it to get better. So it's the people who end up having to pay at the pump. They're going to have problems if we don't continue on the right trajectory. So I don't think anyone here is arguing that you don't want fuel efficiency to go up. But I, I, I am sympathetic to Jigger's sentiment here because I think there's an assumption that CAFE standards are really the only policy game in town. And I literally just tweeted about this before we started recording the podcast. I was reading a 2017 report from the R Street Institute on basically what are called clean tax cuts, creating a set of tax reductions for corporations who are either internally reducing GHG emissions or setting GHG or efficiency targets for their vehicle fleets. They're thinking about a supply side solution to this problem. And we haven't seen it tested. But I really do agree with Jigger's sentiment that 
we need to rethink many of these policies if they're not working as planned. And if there are a lot of automakers that are gunning against them, my sense is that the politics don't work for something like these clean tax cuts in the immediate term. But you could probably get automakers to support them in some way if it means that you could lower their taxes. I mean, we should at least be exploring this stuff. They just got a big corporate tax giveaway. They just got their corporate tax lowered so much, there is absolutely no incentive for them to do anything more on that front. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And and the reality of politics today means that this probably won't go forward. And, And this paper was written in 2017 before the conversation around the the corporate tax cuts but i like the i like the policy approach i like saying hold on here is cafe working what can, what else can we do to support vehicle efficiency and i i just have not heard that conversation take place but so let's think about it differently stephen like if you think about innovation in the auto industry because of the overregulation of autos it is not possible to set up an auto company in this country unless you've invented paypal before that right? It's just not possible, right? If I invented a new engine, there are so many entrepreneurs that I meet that have a new engine that, that burns so much better, right? Remember the X prize had that like hundred mile an hour mile per gallon car. That guy has not even gotten close to getting that car to market. Why? Because unless you've got a billion dollars, you can't get through all the testing to be able to bring a car to market. So now you're forced to sell your design through the automakers who don't want to sell it, right? So, I mean, part of this is actually just creating an innovative marketplace. Like you should be able to like waive most of the safety rules and other rules at the government if you're selling less than a thousand cars. No, again, Jigger, I appreciate the sentiment. I don't necessarily have any other policy ideas that could uh, support that kind of innovation in place of cafe standards, but I think it's helpful to always revisit these policy solutions that are taken for granted and accepted as maybe the only solution. So that when someone like Pruitt comes and takes a scalpel or a butcher knife or a sledgehammer or whatever to them, that we have potentially something to replace it with. I know the politics don't always align with with the reality of, you know, coming up with these solutions, but it's super helpful to have that conversation. Yeah. And rolling back on the standards is certainly not the answer. Agreed. Well, let's move forward and finish the show and uh, grab that free electron and share it with our listeners. Catherine, what is yours today? I have two very quickies. One is, and this is again, I'm going to give a shout out to EIA. They have a really interesting um, outage report that comes out, frequency and duration of um, outages, and they do it by states and by utility types. And it's just worth looking at to see what causes outages and where they happen and what states are worse. And, you know, you can see co-ops certainly have more outages and they take longer to re- repair. And that's to be expected because the you know consumers are generally farther apart than in a muni, which will perform more. So it's, it's, that's a pretty interesting report to go to that. The other thing I just have to do a FERC shout out, which is they're doing is distributed energy resource technical conference two days next week, where they're going to really try to hash out some of these, you know, how do we allow distributed energy resources to participate in the wholesale market. There's seven panels of speakers. I think there are probably 70 speakers at this thing. And um, I'm going to be there with my eyes and ears glued. Jigger, give us your free electron. So one area where Scott Pruitt's been very effective is he's used a little used federal law designed to prevent small refineries from closing due to financial hardship 
and turn this into an exemption for almost all of the refineries in Texas from meeting the ethanol requirement. And so, so far, the EPA has exempted roughly 20 refineries from their 2016 biofuels requirements and at least 25 for 2017. And so the Renewable Fuels Association, which is, you know, the governing body for ethanol, hasn't figured out exactly what this is going to do. But one ethanol lobbyist thinks that it's going to be a billion gallons of lost demand or 7% of the entire 2017 ethanol requirement. So already the entire market for renewable fuels credits are cratering, known as RINs, because the refiners are the ones who have to buy the RINs to be able to like you know, like to be able to say that they've certified that they bought enough ethanol. And so I think that, you know, Trump promised the Midwest farmers he wasn't going to eviscerate the ethanol mandate, but he kind of has allowed Scott Pruitt to do it on his behalf. Mm. Well, damn it, Jigger, you proved your point again, that while we're focused on maybe the big picture story, there's a lot of other stuff happening behind the scenes that we're not focused on. The agricultural story is actually quite interesting because farmers are going to get hit by Chinese tariffs on soybeans and pork and other commodities because of the steel tariffs and solar tariffs that Trump implemented. So that's a, a political factor to watch out for in upcoming elections. And you should also watch out for upcoming solar roofs from Tesla because they're actually coming out now. I saw on Twitter and in the blogosphere that people are now getting the initial deliveries of that Tesla solar roof. And um, one fir- I think the first customer got the solar roof for about $100,000. And it was uh, in place of a roof. He was waiting to get a roof replacement for $70,000. So that was for uh, three power walls and the entire solar roof. I do not have the... um, I do not have the capacity in front of me. I apologize. But the uh, time spent on the installation was quite interesting to me because uh, it's clearly much different than a standard solar system where you can get two people on a roof basically installing a PV system for in a, in a few hours. They can do two, three systems a day now. Um, this homeowner said that it took about two weeks for the team of about 10 to 15 installers to take the old roof down and build the new solar roof. Um, obviously a very different type of job, but if we're thinking about solar roofs at scale and you're thinking about lowering your costs, interesting that you're comparing a couple of week job with 10 or 15 installers to something that can take a few hours to do. That must have been some roof to cost $70,000 to replace the existing roof. Well, well, my my roof in Chevy Chase, Maryland cost that much to replace, which is why I went the Atlantis Sun Slates route, and it was a lot cheaper. I mean, slate roofs are really expensive. I have to say the Energy Twitter really um, went negative against the Tesla solar roof yesterday, and I just felt so... Um, like mad about that because I think Tesla is doing the world a service in this area and I beat up on Tesla as much as the next guy but I think that you know having a roof that's beautiful it's integrated and that actually serves a dual function is valuable and everyone wants to boil it down to a cost per watt or cost per kilowatt hour but I think there's a lot of people in this country who when they're replacing their really expensive tile roofs or slate roofs or other types of roofs are willing to do something like this because they like the look of it. I think it's the right pain point. It's the, it's a decision that homeowners make that is painful. And if you can you know, work your way into that process, then you're probably likely to find a lot of accepting buyers. 
And I think that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening. Catch us everywhere. Catch us on Spotify now. You can get us on Amazon Alexa because we're on TuneIn. So you can ask Alexa to listen to the Energy Gang. You can find us on NPR One, on uh, Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, of course, everywhere. Google Play. Give us a rating and review on any of those platforms. Um, Apple is super helpful for us. And send us an email at podcast at greentechmedia.com. Better yet, if you want a response or you want to kind of debate the issues publicly with people, Twitter is the best way to get a hold of us. Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week. What do you got going on the rest of the week? I'm going to enjoy the snow we're supposed to get on Saturday. Jigger, um, good luck with your solar storage system. Hopefully the snow doesn't put a dent in your progress oh i'm sure that's gonna go just fine it's it's my it's my son's soccer uh my his first soccer lesson on sunday so that's what i'm worried about (laughs) swarm ball that's right well jigger shaw and Catherine hamilton are my co-hosts we are the energy gang thanks for listening i'm stephen lacy we'll catch you next time Mm